third week of Advent, and we at our church uh, have always, and, and I guess as long as I'm here, we'll always plan to observe Advent. Advent is not just about the time of Christmas. Advent is also a time of anticipation. In the, in the celebration of Christmas, it's a great thing to celebrate, and I, I think that we should be celebrating Christmas. Uh, Jesus came to earth, right? He was born of the Virgin Mary. Angels hung in the sky and proclaimed the coming of this, of this baby. I think it's a great thing to celebrate. But here at The Way, we strive to uh, celebrate Advent because it doesn't just leave us looking back, but it calls us, it causes us to look forward. We don't just look back at the arrival of a baby, but we look forward to the coming of a king and that moment in which he will return and, as we've studied, take us to be with himself. And so that's what we've done. Now, we've not followed the typical traditional themes of Advent. If you're familiar with Advent, you know that the traditional themes are hope, peace, love, or hope, peace, joy, and love. We've not followed those this year. Some years we do. This year we are looking more at the anticipatory or the anticipation of Jesus' return. And we've been studying the things that he taught about the time he comes back. We're not looking to, to build out any big secondary doctrines. We've been just, just really been working to build out an essential doctrine that we can all believe in, that we can all hold to, that we can all agree upon. So the first week, our theme was preparation. Jesus went to prepare a place for us. That's what he told his disciples as he comforted them, as he looked at the, the suffering that they were about to endure, as he looked at the, the disappointment that they were about to face as they saw him go and die on a cross, be arrested, tried and die on a cross. He knew that they were going to they were gonna struggle with that. And he comforted them. He says, I'm going away, but I'm going to come again for you. I'm going to go to a place, prepare a place for you in my father's house in many rooms. And so he comforted them with this preparation, the idea that he's gone away to do a work on their behalf. He also warned them. In the second week, we looked at the warning. And, and we looked at his call, not for his own preparation, but for us to prioritize our own preparation. So, so in these two weeks, we've developed this essential doctrine that I hope begins to inform us about not just how we live today, but how we live tomorrow and in the days to come as we wait. And that doctrine, I'll just lay it out for you right now. Just, just here's where we're at. Jesus is coming. That was the first week we studied. Jesus is coming so live ready. Jesus, the, the king, not a baby, not a suffering servant, a reigning, ruling, powerful king is coming to get us. That's the first and foremost essential piece of the end days that we need to hold to. But he also says that until he comes, we need to live ready. That means that we're to live ready as if he might come back at any moment, as if he might come back before I finish my next sentence or before we leave this building. Wouldn't it be amazing to be caught up into the heavens with Christ as he returns before we even go home today? That would be an amazing thing, something worth looking forward to. But he says, live ready, not just that he might come back at any moment. Live ready to leave a gospel legacy in case he waits. So live ready so that you are ready in a moment, but live ready so that your children are ready in the generations to come and your grandchildren and your great grandchildren and the generations that follow us are ready. Live ready. And that's what we've developed so far. Now, this, I know, doesn't answer all the questions about the end days and all the questions that people raise and talk about as they consider the, the end of times. It doesn't answer questions about whether the rapture is going to be before a millennium or whether it's going to be after or whether there's going to be no millennium and we're just going to get caught up in the clouds and it's going to end. It, it doesn't answer that question, and I know that. And we can be okay with that. 
Because there's a lot of debate that nobody really agrees on anyway. So let's just hone in on the essentials. It doesn't tell us whether or not this 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 doctrine doesn't solve for us whether or not um, uh, all of his prophecies, all of the prophecies that speak of Israel are going to be fulfilled literally with the nation of Israel or if they're going to be fulfilled by the by the church who has replaced it. It doesn't tell us that it doesn't tell us which perspective we should hold. But it does tell us that Jesus is coming back and that we're to be ready for it. It doesn't tell us and doesn't answer questions for us like, like whether or not there's going to be a seven-year tribulation or whether that tribulation occurred when the temple was destroyed and Rome uh, came in and, and tore it apart. Not, it doesn't answer that question. But it does give us exactly what we need to know. Not, not just for this Christmas season, not just for this Advent season, but every day from here on out. Jesus is coming. Live ready. Well, why, why is this so important? Why did Jesus spend so much time teaching about the kingdom? Why did he take so much effort? Why, when, when, when the chips were down and his disciples were about to face persecution and suffering, why was it the kingdom that he pointed to? Why was it his return that he pointed to? Why, when he entered into ministry, as, as, the, as the Gospel of Mark shows us, when he enters really into the, to the depth and meat of his public ministry, why is it the kingdom that he points to? The coming kingdom. The kingdom is come. Repent and believe. Why is it so important that he starts there? Why is it so important that when he's speaking his last words to his disciples, just about he's about to ascend and they come, hey, is this the day and hour? Are you going to restore the nation of Israel, the kingdom of Israel? And, and he's, he's got teaching about the kingdom. Why is it so important that his last words are dealing with the kingdom? Why is it so important that he spent time teaching his disciples, warning them to be ready? Well, that's the question we're going to answer today. And as we continue to build out our doctrine of what we are to look forward to, the passage we're going to be in, if you've looked in a bulletin, I'm sorry, I totally flubbed it again, um, gave you the wrong passage. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 13, uh, verses 44 through 36. If you have a Bible, you're welcome to turn and, uh, and be there. The verses will be on the screen for the people on this side of the sanctuary. The rest of you, you're out of luck. Now there there be there's Bibles in the uh, in the in the chairs in front of you if you'd like to follow along. But these are two small parables, probably the smallest of parables that, that he taught. <clears throat> very short, very to the point, and I think they'll help us answer these questions about why it was so important. Let's just read the scripture and see what it says. Verse 44: The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Here we go in verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. In this passage, there's this, this two small, very pointed parables sit right in the midst of, of a much bigger, much larger teaching on the kingdom. Jesus has been kind of telling parables about what the kingdom of heaven is going to be like. And whether, he, whether you read in the Scripture about the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of, it, it, it's the same kingdom. It's all the same thing that, that's being referred to. It's, this, it's not a kingdom in the sense of rule or, or, I'm sorry, in the sense of realms and borders. It's not like we think of when we think of, of like uh, England. You know, and the king of England, had, you know, his borders go to where his reign ends. And, and he has 
They, they have castles and royalty and royal families, and there's all this mess that goes along with it. It's not the same kind of kingdom. The kingdom of Christ is not really bound by that. The kingdom of Christ is really where his rule is, where his reign is. So wherever Jesus has saved, wherever he's forgiven, wherever he has redeemed, his reign is. It spreads across the earth, but not everybody on the earth is in the kingdom. And from our perspective, it's really difficult sometimes to tell who that who is and who isn't part of the kingdom, who is and isn't uh, belonging to Christ. In fact, there's some parables that Jesus teaches. It's really impossible for us to know and that there will be weeds uh, planted among the wheat, which is there will be um, to us. It'll look like kingdom people standing right next to us that aren't kingdom people. It's difficult for us to know. But there will come a day, there will come a time in which it will all be made clear. And what his kingdom is today will not always be what his kingdom is. It will look different in the days to come as he returns. And so here he brings us to this place where he teaches about these parables and he helps us see. He helps us see why he taught on it. He helps us see why he he comforted people with it and why he warned people to be ready for it. And I think the way that we answer those questions is first and foremost that there is no greater prize. Listen, I'm going to say it again. There is no greater prize than finding King Jesus and being a citizen of his kingdom. There is no greater prize. Jesus warns us, he comforts us, and he calls us to the kingdom, to his rule and to his reign, because he knows that there is nothing in this world. There's nothing in all of creation that you can can gather, that you can grab hold of That's better than knowing him and being a part of his kingdom. But yet we get twisted up and we get deceived all the time. Well, let's just look and see how he teaches that in these parables. We have we have first a man who's walking through a field and who stumbles along and stumbles upon this great treasure, this great prize. There's no greater prize. He sees the prize and he's just amazed by it. He like, no, nobody sees us. I'm going to cover it up and I'm going to go and I'm going to sell everything I have. I, I don't even think, at least in the story, we don't get an understanding that he goes and measures the value or even figures out the value. He just knows how great a prize this is. He goes and sells everything he has, not, not, not just one or two things, everything. He completely divests himself of everything, liquidates himself completely so that he can go and he can buy this field in order to gain that prize. Now, here's some things we get kind of stuck with in this parable. It's weird for us to think about buried treasure. I mean, that's not something that that's not something we think about very often, right? I mean, we talk about buried treasure in terms of scavenger hunts and games. This was could have been a real life circumstance. It really could happen. I don't think it happened every day that somebody found a buried treasure, but it did happen. And people did bury their valuables. They didn't have Banks of America to, to stick their stuff in. They didn't have safe deposit boxes to lock their stuff in. So they would bury their valuables. It was a common occurrence. They had something that was meaningful to them, and they would go and they would bury it. Go dig in your yard and see if you find something, and it would be really cool to come back and tell us a story. We'll know how exciting it is. But that was, that was, it wasn't something that surprised them. It wasn't something that couldn't have happened. But it's not just the buried treasure that we hang up on. You see, in, in modern America, in our perspective today, as we hear this story, it's like, wait a minute. Wasn't this guy kind of being sneaky and underhanded? Wasn't he wasn't he kind of stealing, taken and taken advantage of? But that's not at all how the Jews would have perceived it in that day. Have you ever heard the rule finders keepers? That's really what they live by. It was rabbinical law. If you found this treasure in a field, it was yours if you bought the field. 
And here's the reality of it. This guy wasn't doing anything illegal. It wasn't, it wasn't like he was stealing the treasure. If he was going to do something underhanded and sneaky, he would have just taken it, right? He looked around. He covered it up. If, he wouldn't have covered it up if, it hadn't, if, if people had seen him. He hid it again. He covered it up so that it would still be there when he came back. But he, he could have, if he was being underhanded, if he was being dishonest, he could have just taken it. He could have just run off with it right then. That would have been dishonest. But see, he used the legal method, the, the, the legal process. He, he went and sold everything he could so that he could pay the fair price for this field. Knowing that that field was worth far more. And here's the reality. Who in their right mind would have sold a field if they'd known the treasure was there? If the owner had known, it's not like this guy was taking something out from under his nose that belonged to him. He had no idea or else he had never sold the field. At least he wouldn't have sold the field with the treasure still in it. He would have taken it. So, so, so this guy isn't, he, he's not being dishonest. He's, he's doing what he needs to do to gain this greatest treasure, this greatest prize. He wants it desperately. He sees its value and he longs for it. And the second parable is of a pearl merchant, a merchant of pearls. Pearls were quite a bit more valuable then than they are now. I mean, I think we still like them. We understand that they're valuable, but they don't hold nearly the value today that they did then. And so there was this merchant who dealt in pearls, who knew what he was looking for, who knew what he wanted. And while he was searching for it, he stumbles upon this great prize. And again, recognizes that there is nothing in this world that compares and makes himself poor that he might gain this great wealth. You see, Jesus is helping us see that the kingdom of heaven, his earthly and eternal reign is like this. There is no greater prize. I read a, I was in a Bible study once and I, it's been a long time ago. I can't remember what the study was. But it asked a question about what I would rather have. A stack of bananas or a stack of cash? What would you rather have? I think we're all thinking money, right? I mean, I'm not the only one, right? Money. Well, let's flip that just a little bit. What if you were on a desert island, not certain when someone might come for you, what would you want then? Bananas or money? Hey, I'll work for peanuts on a desert island, right? I, I like to eat. I like to keep living. Give me the bananas. You see, we set value based on what on, on, on our circumstances, on what we see and what we perceive. Jesus is saying that there is a reality that transcends every circumstance. There is a reality that goes past all of your situations and all of your perspectives. That there is nothing greater than the kingdom of Christ. It is the greatest treasure you and I could ever gain. It is worth us selling everything, divesting ourselves of everything in this world that we might have it. You see, that's the, the, the point of the story. But that's not always what we do, is it? So he teaches us. 
When suffering comes, be comforted. I'm coming for you. The kingdom is coming. When everything's good and golden and, and, and it just seems easy, and don't get deceived. Be warned. Be ready. You need to know this. I need to know this. We need to be reminded of this because we often lose sight of it. We need to be told over and over and over and over and over that our greatest prize is to know and be known by King Jesus. There is nothing greater in this world. There is nothing worth more. There is nothing as valuable. One of my favorite quotes from a sermon is preached by C.S. Lewis. It's called The Weight of Glory. I would, I would commend you to, to go and read it. In the midst of the sermon, in the opening lines of the sermon, he says this. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward. I mean, just think about that line. That's, that's a pretty powerful line. If we consider the unblushing promises, I mean, these promises of the reward that we've been told is coming. It's not it's not the kind of stuff you talk about in polite company, that kind of thing. I mean, it's unblushing. There's no embarrassment to be had. There's, it's the kind of stuff that should just floor us, that should just shock us, that there's this much treasure to be had, this much reward coming our way. If indeed we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Listen, hear me. Jesus has invited you to a vacation at the beach. Get up out of this field full of mud pies. Paul called it dung. I'd love to use the word he used. Now you know what I'm talking about. But we can mess around with the manure that this world has to offer. Or we can find our joy in our King. He is inviting you to a vacation at the beach. What would you give for it? There's no, 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 no thing that compares. There's nothing that should stir us up more. He's promised us a house with many rooms that has a place for you and you and you and you and, and me for all of us to abide with Him. He's promised us a house with many rooms and a, and a, and a time where He will come and He will take us unto Himself. It's why we're stirred when we think of that. It's why it comforts us. It's why when we read words from Isaiah about the eternal reign of this Christ, the eternal reign of this king sitting on the throne of David, that our hearts are stirred up. It's, it's why Isaiah wrote of times where, where a, a, a wolf would lay down with a lamb and a child would play over the hole of the cobra. And a child would reach into the adder's den and no harm would come. It's why when we read Revelation 21 that we get so excited to hear about a time when the Alpha and the Omega will come and will make all things new. He knows the beginning from the end and He's going to make it all new. He's going to wipe away your tears, wipe away your pain. He's going to put death to death. 
And this city is going to come down. And when John saw it in its splendor, it needed no light because the sun was there. Streets of gold. Gates of pearl. This magnificent city with walls founded on every kind of jewel. You see, it speaks of the splendor. And I can only imagine that it is even more than I can imagine. That's what He's inviting you to. That's what He has for you. That's what He longs for you. And we need to be reminded because we get caught up playing in the, playing in the cow pies that lay in the field. We need to be reminded that there's something so much more valuable, something so much more worthy. It's not going to make sense to everyone. Not, not everyone would have agreed with this pearl merchant or this man in the field. Not everybody would have seen it the same way. But those of us who belong to the kingdom, you can see it, can't you? Don't you know it? It's worth everything. Nothing is of as great value. I think the second reason he does this, the second why, why does he teach about it so much? Why does he tell us so much about it? Why does he comfort us with the, the knowledge of his return? Why? Does He warn us to be ready? Because He knows what we need to know. The one source of His, of, I'm sorry, the one source of abiding joy in this life and the one to come is to know King Jesus and His kingdom. See, Jesus warns us. He comforts us and He reminds us of this because He wants us, His people, to know this infinite joy. I... I don't know, was this a pretty joyous moment? The kids coming and singing? That was fun. I, I, was there somebody in here frowning? Probably not. Laughing, having a good time. I saw the cameras up. There's probably a good Facebook moment when Elsie fell off, off, the, off the stage. And I mean, I'm not making fun of her, but that's worth some money, right? That's, that's money in the bank. That's you too. If somebody got it on film, I'll pay cash. Just saying. The reality, that's fun stuff. We love moments like that, don't we? I mean, don't we love feeling happy? Isn't that something that brings us all together? It kind of connects everyone that we all just like to be happy. We want to be happy. But every one of us look for happiness in a lot of different places. Don't we? I mean, just think about the hurt and the pain we felt in our, in our state over the last several weeks as we've been brought face to face with the hate that resides in man. But just think. Think about, think about a, a young girl who has gas poured down her throat and set on fire. Man, that puts a... Oh, gosh. Puts a, a, that, that just ruins it, doesn't it? How can we be happy in a world broken like this? Because this world is not the source of our joy. This world and the things that it offers 
are fleeting and they're temporary. But Jesus, Jesus says, hey, look to me. I'm coming. Be ready. And the joy that you sense in the moments now will be yours forever and ever. The joy that that pervades your heart even in the midst of difficulty will be something you enjoy forever and ever. You see, Jesus knows exactly what you need. He knows exactly who you are. He knows exactly what's best for you. He knows. He knows what you were designed for and what will satisfy you most. So He calls us to live in obedience. He calls us to obey His commands and He reminds us that as we look to Him, as we live under His reign, in His kingdom, with Him as King, we will know joy. Jesus isn't a cosmic killjoy. He's the source of joy. He gives you commands because He knows what's best for you. He doesn't give you commands to limit you, to keep you from joy. He gives you commands to free you to enjoy this life, to enjoy Him, to know this infinite joy. But we've been twisting this up all along. Since the very fall into a sin, from, from, from the time of the garden, we've been messing this up. When the serpent came to Eve, do you remember how he tempted her? Do you remember what he said to her? Well, let me re- refresh your memory. Genesis 3, verses 4 through 5, the serpent said to the woman, You won't die. You will not surely die. You see, he'd already asked her, well, hey, what about this tree over here? This tree that God had told them they shouldn't eat of. Well, she gives her perspective. She gives her understanding of what the what, what God has said. We shouldn't eat of it. We shouldn't even touch it or we're going to die. And the serpent said, oh, you won't die. You're not going to die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Man, does, do you get what he just did? God is keeping this tree from you because he doesn't want you to know the fullness of what he could be. He doesn't want you to know all that there is to be in this life. He's keeping this from you. He's limiting you. I can be like God. That's pretty powerful temptation. That's pretty powerful motive. But in that we found misery and dissatisfaction. But Jesus knows. Our Creator knows. He knows us inside and out. I, let me just say, have you ever tried to use a knife as a, as a screwdriver? You've done that, haven't you? I mean, I don't think anybody does that with Phillips head screwdrivers. You know, they're a little cross. But definitely with a flat tip. Get the butter knife out. You're fighting hard to keep it in. How about, have you ever tried to use a hammer as a wrench? Probably not. How, how about, have you ever tried to use a light bulb as a hammer? Just imagine driving that nail. I mean, even if it's just a little picture nail. That's not going to end well, is it? 
If we understand that design matters, if we understand the purpose of something matters, why would we be surprised that Jesus, our Creator, understands that too? You see, He knows what you need and He knows what you shouldn't have. He knows what's best for you. He's not giving you commands and calling you to obedience under His authority to limit you. He's calling you because He wants you to know the fullest sense of joy now and in the life to come. The reality is, abiding joy, abiding joy, infinite joy is not the result of a right horizontal circumstance. But it's a right vertical relationship. It's the, it's the result of a right vertical relationship. Now let me, let, me, let me just say right up front, I know that that can be a difficult statement to hold to and believe. I know, I know what this church personally has suffered this year. I know what the people here have hurt over. And I know that if I know as much as I do, that there is hurt and pain in ways that I can't, that, that, that I have no idea of. I know that our people have hurt. I know that as I watch the news that there's hurt and there's pain and there's suffering in the world. I know it. And I know as I stand here and I say that, that I even struggle believing it, but I have learned it to be true and I am learning it to be true. You see, as one who has suffered loss and pain, as one who suffers alongside many of you, as one who has, has continued and continues to, to deal with suffering and, and persecution and trouble, as one who knows, let me tell you, hear my testimony, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. We, we can find all we want in Him. And, and yes, it will hurt. And maybe we're not up dancing a jig like these kids were doing a minute ago. But in our hearts, we can know the joy of Him. Jesus is better than what this world has to offer. Let it go. Release it. Quit hanging on. You see, the reason we struggle with joy is not because it's not available, but because we're looking to all the things of this world to give it to us. You and I, as we do that, will be let down over and over and over again. And be warned. You might just be let down at the very end. You see, because there's no amount of money that you can put in a bank that's going to give you this kind of lasting, infinite joy. There's no amount of health that you can have. I don't care if you're if you got the hardest body in the room, if you're chiseled and you got a 12 pack. I don't care if you got the best blood pressure in the house. Your health will not last you. Even good things like family. will often disappoint you. They're not going to measure up. They're not going to be able to provide this kind of joy. He might use your family as a tool to bring you joy. But you must first get Him in the proper place. You see, because no matter what you have, no matter what you're clinging to, no matter what it is, it doesn't matter what it is and how satisfying you find it. If you don't have Him first, it will leave you wanting. There is no other. Abiding joy is not the result of a right horizontal circumstance. So even if you get everything right here, you won't know this joy that He longs for you to know. And it's why why Paul wrote of things like he did 
that he counted all things lost. That's why he said that everything he had, everything that made him measure up, everything that was important in his life was counted as lost. It was dung. That's why James said brother, that the brother of Jesus taught us to rejoice in our sufferings. That's why Peter, when he wrote to a suffering church, when he wrote to a church who was suffering for the name of Christ, he wrote, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Is that the first thing you want to hear when you're in the midst of the trial, in the midst of the tribulation? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You know, as a pastor, we've been trained not to do that. Oh, just cry with them. And hear me, I think there's a time for that. But in the midst of their suffering, in the depth of their suffering, they, he, he comes to them and he writes them this letter, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope, the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. In what do I rejoice? In my hope, in the inheritance that I have to look forward to, in the life that I have, in the, in the, in, in, in the faith that I'm being guarded in, I rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, I've been grieved by various trials. Oh, well, they were martyrs dying for their faith, right? I mean, this is different than just everyday suffering. Well, when a martyr died... It left a family member to mourn. Fathers and mothers were losing children and brothers and sisters were losing siblings. Churches were losing members. You think that didn't cause just residual suffering in their lives? Oh, it brought it. They knew it. You see, but in the midst of it, we can Rejoice. Are we jumping up and down? Are we celebrating and smiling from ear to ear in the midst of the, in the trial? Maybe not. But the joy remains. The joy resides. The rejoicing can continue as we keep our eye on Christ. The coming King. And finally, just one last thought on why He told us this. Why He taught it so much. Why He comforts us with it and why He warns us with it. It's because He needs us to know. He wants us to know that we cannot hold on to this world and hold on to the King, on to King Jesus or His coming kingdom at the same time. Did you get it? In both of those parables, in both of those parables, the men had to give it all up. They had to make themselves poor here. They had to sell everything so that they could gain their greatest treasure. Now listen, I, I'm not saying that you can go buy your way into heaven. I don't think that's what those parables teach. But I do think that it teaches us that not how we merit the kingdom, but how we receive the kingdom. How we receive the blessing, how we are able to take hold of what he's given us so that we can enjoy it and actually apply it. You see, we must let go of the things of this world that we might grab hold of what he's given us, that we might make it ours. We can't live under our own authority. We don't get to be our own gods. 
You and I, it is a lie if we believe it. It is a lie from the devil that we can be like God. We can't. He's king. The best thing for us is to submit to his authority. We can't live by our own wisdom. We've tried it. Haven't you tried it? Haven't you had all the answers and depended on those? How's it working out for you? Let's rest in his wisdom. Let's lean on his understanding. See, we we can't hoard enough earthly treasure. We can't gain enough things. We can't do enough. We don't have enough power. He says, let that go. Let go. And cling to me. Sell your earthly life that you might buy his eternal kingdom. There's only one way. Let's look at Jesus, your greatest treasure. Let me just close it just by twisting this just a little bit. Because that's a high call. It's a high call and it's a big task. And, and, and really, I think we spend, as Christians, we spend our lives, our, the rest of our Christian lives is spent in this way, figuring out that, man, i got to let go of that so I can have Jesus. i got to let go of that so I can have Jesus. And that's big. And it's, it's a high call to say, to, to say that this world is, 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 is fading in comparison to what we receive in Christ. That's, that's big. But I want you to see that He is not calling you to something He has not already set the example for Himself. It's because at one time, Jesus was a man walking through a field who came upon a great treasure. And He called it His bride. And He saw the value of His bride. He loved her. And He gave up everything for her. You see, He saw you so worth it. He wanted you so desperately to have what He has for you that He gave it all up that He might have you so that you might not have Him. He saw this great pearl, this pearl of great price. He said, there's nothing more valuable to me. I'm going to give it all up so that I can have that. For the joy set before him. He endured the cross. He despised the shame. You know, that is the author and perfecter of our faith. And now we can look to him, not not just for his example, but for his power and for the joy set before us. Certainly the joy before him was the glory of his father. But don't be mistaken that the joy that he had to look forward to was the bringing home of his bride. He waits with great anticipation for the moment that his father says, go and get her. He's coming for you. Jesus is coming. Live ready. Why would you live ready? Because he is worth waiting for. And there is no greater prize than him. Let's pray. Father, you are gracious and good to us. We certainly are undeserving. We, we know it, but, but Father, You have said that we're worth this. By, by whatever standard You use, You have said You want us. I just ask in this moment that You would make us 
yours. And that you would show us the, the, the trappings of this life that we cling to more completely, more sincerely than we do to our Savior Jesus. Would you show us where we need to submit? Would you show us where we need to search more deeply that we might know the, the abundance of this treasure? Would you show us what we need to release that we can enjoy it more fully? Father, would you would you make this world grow dim in the light of your face as we consider your glory and your grace? Would you make it grow dim? Would you make even us our own Godhead, our own authority, our own perceptions, our own perspectives? Would you help us to to, to get them in the right priority? That as we strive in this world, as we as we push forward in this world, that, that we wouldn't look to any of those things. Not not that they're bad in and of themselves, God, you know that. You've given many of them to us for a reason. But that they may never take your place. Just pray that you'd work now, Spirit. Convince us of this truth. It's all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.